good morning. Again, welcome to Solid Rock. We are happy to have you with us. If you're visiting, thank you for choosing to spend your morning with us worshiping today. If you want to begin making your way back to your seat, and it, those who are on the front row or the second row, if you want to begin passing those offering baskets, if you have a contribution to make, you can place that in the basket as it passes you by. Uh, the one and actually two announcements. Um, first is we have a new membership meeting, which is going to take place on July 21st. What is that a Saturday? Does somebody have a calendar? Yes. 21st. This is embarrassing. Like the third week in a row that the dates are messing up in my mind. So the 21st, July 21st, uh, we are going to have a new membership meeting. Um, if you are interested in becoming a member of Solid Rock, we will talk about what that entails. If you're interested in attending that meeting, let me know or send us an email at info at solidrocksgf.org and uh, we can get you the uh, application and the paper description of what membership is all about. Um, the second announcement is this morning is July 1st, which means it is Common Meal Sunday. So we are going to share a meal together after our worship service. We encourage you to stick around and eat with us. Sound good? All right. Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was, and Moses told them, It is the food the Lord has given you to eat. There are the Lord's, these are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are going to come back to this story in just a few moments. You know, having just concluded our series in the book of James a couple of weeks ago, we are going to spend the remainder of the summer, or most of the rest of the summer, just reverting back to the lectionary and following the texts that have been assigned to each particular Sunday. And then this fall, we plan to begin a series on Sabbath and work. So we're excited about that. We're in the planning stages. But for now, we're spending some time in the lectionary. Today, we will cover a portion of 2 Corinthians the text assigned to, to today in the lectionary. Now, just so everybody's on the same page, when I talk about the lectionary, the lectionary is just a collection of scriptures that a good portion of the global church uses to help guide us through the different seasons on the church calendar. Um, and the collection is organized in three-year chunks in such a way that if it is followed, we make a journey through the entirety of our scriptures every three years, which is uh, such a, an important thing for us, I think. But having just celebrated the day of Pentecost several weeks ago, we are now in the longest period of time on the church calendar, 
which is referred to simply as, are you ready? Wait for it. The season after Pentecost. It's incredibly creative. I know, the season after Pentecost, also known as ordinary time. So today's text comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. If you were with us last week, you know Austin spent some time there in chapter 6. Several weeks ago, we spent some time at the beginning of 2 Corinthians during Baptism Sunday. Today, we are going to read a portion of chapter 8 where Paul addresses a specific practical issue with the church in Corinth related to their generosity to the church in another part of the world, specifically, in this case, the church in Jerusalem. So I want to read through this text, talk about it a little bit, and then talk about some practical issues for us individually as followers of Jesus, and then talk about some practical issues for us as a congregation. So the situation in Jerusalem. The New Testament doesn't really offer us a detailed explanation of what was going on in Jerusalem at this time, what Christians in the holy city were facing. But we do find, especially in the letters that Paul wrote, we find several appeals that he makes on behalf of the Christians in that city. And those appeals help us to begin to piece some things together about a severe famine that was taking place in and around Jerusalem that resulted in poverty, inadequate resources, hunger, and the like, things that are associated with famine. And so in the New Testament, we see that Paul is kind of on this tour on a campaign around some of the churches that he helped start, and he is making appeals to those congregations on behalf of those who were suffering in Jerusalem. So here in today's text from 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is going to challenge the believers in Corinth to be generous to those in need. But right before we read his actual appeal, in the first few verses of chapter 8, he points to the example of other Christians and in a different part of the world and what they were doing to help out in Jerusalem. So it seems as though at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul is at least implicitly stirring the pot a little bit. He's trying to stir up that competitive spirit so that the Corinthians would think about it and hopefully do something. You know, last week, one of my brothers was in town with his family, and we went swimming with them a couple of days. He has a daughter that is four years old who loves to go to the pool, but she's also terrified of the water because she can't swim. So she's not interested in jumping in the deep end at all. She doesn't want to put her head underwater um, because she can't swim. Cora, on the other hand, who also can't swim but feels invincible nonetheless, and is also clothed in one of those puddle jumper flotation devices, all she wants to do is jump in the deep end. And she would prefer if there wasn't an adult there to catch her. And I overheard my brother at one point telling his daughter, hey, look, Cora just jumped in the pool. Why don't you give it a shot? And that's kind of what I envision Paul doing here with the Corinthians. He is using competition to try to get them to act. It's not an unusual tactic today. It wasn't unusual then. It's a very common rhetorical tactic to spur somebody to action. Hey, look over them. Look at what they're doing. You don't want to be outdone by them, do you? Now, I think it's important to understand 
as New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes, that in this time period, that method of trying to get somebody to act wasn't done in a hostile way. It was comprised more of friendly banter because the purpose was to encourage action. The purpose wasn't to further divide enemies, but to get somebody to act. And if it actually became competitive or if it became contentious to the point where one group felt as though they were superior in some way because of their generosity, well, then at that point it had gone too far. But that's not the point. Paul isn't trying to divide them. He's just trying to get them up off their seats. You know, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but maybe you could liken it to the official Twitter accounts of college sports teams. Have you ever seen that where they will go back and forth in this banter? And on the field or on the court, the teams are actually quite competitive and don't like one another, but what's taking place on Twitter, this banter is obviously done in a playful way. Or maybe you could think of the fast food restaurants recently that are going after IHOP, or excuse me, IHOP, because of their recent marketing gimmick. That's sort of the idea that I get with Paul here. It's this friendly banter. But he's saying, hey, look at the Macedonians. Look at what they're doing on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. And geographically, the Macedonians were close enough to the city of Corinth where Paul was hopeful that that would stir a little bit of that civic competition. He says, they gave. So what are you going to do? Now, even though Paul is pointing to a region in Macedonia that had recently experienced an economic surge, apparently that economic growth hadn't trickled down to the poorest of the poor in the church because they were still suffering in an impoverished state, as Paul indicates here. And he said, but that didn't stop them from contributing to those in need in Jerusalem. They sacrificially gave to this relief project the sharing of the financial burden of Christians in Jerusalem. Now, none of this, mind you, is done in a heavy-handed way. I think we're going to notice as we read the section that is assigned to today in chapter 8 that Paul actually uses very mild language. He's trying to intentionally use inoffensive language because he wants to assure the Corinthians that this wasn't for him. He's not a money-hungry charlatan. There were some opponents in the city of Corinth that were trying to convince those in the church that that's all Paul was after. He was after personal gain, but Paul wants to reassure them, look, I'm trying to raise funds for Jerusalem. This isn't for me. All I really care about is the needs of those suffering in Jerusalem, that their needs are met. So he says, look, the Macedonians are doing their part. All I'm asking of you is that you do your part as well. You agreed to do this, so follow through with your commitment. We pick it up today, our text, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, so Paul's really trying to butter him up, it seems. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Excel in this act of grace also. We find that really mild language that is used. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul assures them, I'm not forcing you into this. He is strongly encouraging them, I would say, but he doesn't have the power to make those in Corinth give, and making them contribute to the needs of others wasn't even the point. Yes, meeting the needs of those who were suffering was the primary goal, but as we follow this text through, we're going to find that there's actually something else at stake in this encouragement towards generosity. We'll address that momentarily. So Paul has appealed first to the example of the Macedonians who gave out of their poverty. Now, in this section we've just read, he appeals to a second example, the example of their Lord their Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the pinnacle of self-giving, sacrificial love, who was rich, not financially or in terms of earthly wealth, but to draw from a passage like Philippians chapter 2, Christ was rich in that he was equal with God the Father. There isn't really a higher level of possession or authority or privilege that we could ever hope to achieve, and yet Jesus relinquished that wealth. He set it aside, according to Paul, to make others rich through his poverty. This is an idea we're going to talk about in more detail next week, how we exchange our poverty not for the richness of Christ, but we exchange it for the the poverty of Christ, which turns out to be the richness. We'll discuss that next week. But this is an example, Paul says, that we are to follow. An example that we spend our lives trying to implement. How can I personally, and then how can we as the church, try to break down the barriers of self-preservation, personal comfort, or maybe it's breaking down the barriers of self-preoccupation, where we can even begin to see the needs of others which is an obvious first step. We can never do anything to help those in need if we don't first see the needs that exist. Now, at this point in Paul's argument, that sense of competition as a rhetorical strategy wanes because obviously we could never hope to compete with Jesus in terms of self-giving love. We could never hope to even match the type of self-giving love Christ demonstrates. And yet, we do seek to embody it. We do seek to grow in that type of self-giving love for the sake of others, which is a lifelong pursuit. Because the reality is there are very real needs all around us. There are needs in our community, needs around the world, and obviously you and I as individuals, but also us as a congregation, we cannot single-handedly probably solve a single one of those crises. We just don't have the resources or the manpower to solve those, or woman power, to solve those crises. Our small congregation can meet very few of the needs even in our own neighborhood, but we can do our part. And we are instructed to do our part, and that's all that we are asked to do. We're not asked to solve the problems Paul wasn't asking those in Corinth to completely eradicate poverty in the Jerusalem church, but he was asking them to give a hand and do what they could. And I think one of Paul's broader points, not just here, but one of the points that he's constantly making 
to the churches that he planted is that generosity is not just for the benefit of those who are on the receiving end of aid. It is first and foremost for those who are experiencing need, but a side effect of our generosity is that it impacts us in a paradoxical way. It impacts us in a positive way as well. This is what he says in verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started out only to do this, not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So Paul says, here's my opinion. I actually love that short sentence from Paul, who is obviously quite the wordsmith and an authoritative voice within the church, but here in Corinth, he is not exploiting his authority. He's saying, look, this is my opinion. This is going to be good for you. Your generosity will, in the end, bless you as well. Now, it may not be financial blessing. I really think that's a type of thinking that we need to do away with. The idea that when we give generously, it is going to come back to us dollar for dollar. Or if we are really lucky and God really likes us, then maybe we will get a two-to-one return on our investment. It may not come back to us in monetary form at all, and that's okay because we still, in the end, benefit because generosity is good for the soul. Generosity is always good for the soul, and soul care, nourishing your soul, doesn't have a price tag. It is more valuable than anything you could use your physical resources on. But that's not it. There's another benefit that I think Paul implicitly points to. So it benefits the one in need, first and foremost. That is the primary concern. It also benefits you as you give to offer aid because it helps nourish your soul in that it is keeping us from the endless and anxiety-ridden path of self-preservation. And then finally, I think especially in the context of community, our generosity has a unifying effect. It unites us with one another. I think this is abundantly clear in the context of the needy Jerusalem church. If you remember prior to all of this that is taking place in Paul's letter to those in Corinth, in the earliest years of the church, there is some tension between Jewish Christians on one hand and Gentile Christians, on the other hand, because there were some within Judaism that had started following Jesus that were thinking, well, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus himself was a serious Jew, and he came to earth as the culmination of God's self-disclosure to humanity through the Jewish religion. And so that's fine. We, we welcome Gentiles to begin following Jesus as well, but they first need to convert to Judaism, because this is what it's all about. And much of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, we see this tension sort of being worked out. You may remember Galatians chapter 2, where Paul makes that infamous journey to the city of Jerusalem, and he's accompanied by Barnabas and Titus, Titus, who was himself a Gentile, and they start hashing this out with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And 
In Galatians 2, Paul says that when the pillars of the church in Jerusalem saw that God's grace had been extended to Paul, what do they do? They gave him the right hand of fellowship. No, what they didn't do, they didn't require Titus to become circumcised. He didn't have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And at this meeting that was all about the unity of the church, the unity of Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, the one thing at the very end of that account where Paul is telling us about these events is that the only thing the, the Jewish leaders asked that Paul did was remember the poor. Verse 10, and Paul says, that's the very thing I was interested in doing. And I think Paul includes that in his account of this meeting in Jerusalem where unity is starting to be established between Jews and Gentiles. I think he includes that detail in here because contributing to those who are needy has a unifying effect within the church. It would serve to unite the church. The leaders say, remember the poor, specifically those in the Jerusalem church who are suffering. And the implication, I think, what Paul is convinced of is that generosity unites the church. Because when I give of my resources to fund missions work or other humanitarian organizations or needs in our congregation or needs in congregations around the world, when I do that, I am reminded that I'm connected to the one that is in need. That we are not opponents. We're not opposed to other churches in Springfield. We're not opposed to other churches around the globe. We are connected. This, this is not an isolationist spirituality or personal faith that we are a part of. When others suffer, that impacts me because we are brothers and sisters and vice versa. If I suffer, that impacts others. And going without something that I want or maybe even something I need is a powerful, tangible reminder that what happens to the one who is suffering is is important to me as well. My, my own needs aren't the only thing that I'm to be concerned with. Let's continue reading in verse 12. Paul says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So the appeal that Paul makes is not just based on the importance of equality within Greek philosophy, although I do think that enters the argument that Paul makes, but it is also founded on the biblical narrative a portion of the narrative that we read this morning from Exodus of God's provision to the people of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness in the form of manna. And Paul seems to imply here that the principles of that story apply directly to this situation. He's telling the Corinthians, look, you have more than you need, so share. Don't hoard it. And if the principles of the story in Exodus apply to the Corinthians, the implication is that if you do hoard, th those resources will be destroyed or 
you might be destroyed in the process of that. Now, we do find, I think, a couple of other practical considerations when it comes to the type of generosity that Paul urges. First of all, he suggests that generosity is not intended to put more people in poverty. If generosity puts more people in poverty, then it's pointless because there are still needs to be met. Now, I get the fact that this is a nuanced conversation, and I think it might be tempting to gloss over this portion of what Paul is saying because of the fear, well, if, if we give people that out, everybody can make that claim. If I give self-sacrificially, well, how am I going to meet my own needs? If we have that out, I think a lot of times we will take it. I, I can come up with a lot of financial excuses to hang on to the little bit of money I have. I think we all can. This isn't about Paul giving the Corinthians the opportunity to, to do backflips and wriggle out of the pervasive commandment throughout our scriptures to be generous with our time, our talents, our finances, and our love. Paul isn't saying, well, that there's no point in generosity. Obviously, he's encouraging generosity, and that's undoubtedly a part of the Christian life. Maybe you're reminded of that story in Luke chapter 21, where Jesus was teaching in the temple, and he looks up and he sees some wealthy individuals giving their presumably large offerings, placing it in the, the offering box. And then that image is contrasted with a poor widow who goes to the offering box and drops in two copper coins, which was the equivalent of just a fraction of a day laborer's daily wage. So she's really giving nothing. In verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. According to Jesus, the widow's great gift was far greater because she gave out of her poverty. So what seemed huge wasn't really sacrificial because it maybe didn't cost as much. And what seemed infinitesimal was the greatest sacrifice because it was everything. And I think we find in our scriptures that there is virtue in sacrificial giving for the benefit of others, but Paul also concedes in this text in 2 Corinthians that generosity doesn't require that you can't feed your family. It doesn't require that we then have to go get assistance from others because we gave everything we had away. The goal in generosity for Paul was not more poverty. The goal was more equality that the needs of the community might be met. So do you feel a little bit of that tension there? I mean, Paul's life demonstrated sacrificial living for the sake of others. We see it everywhere in the life and in the teaching of Jesus. And we see Paul point to the example of the Macedonians who gave out of their poverty. I think Paul is in favor of sacrificial generosity but for the Corinthians, he doesn't even push it that far. He says, you have an abundance, so just give out of your abundance to do what you can to meet the needs in Jerusalem. And in so doing, he's appealing to this idea of mutuality. The Christians in Jerusalem are not a project that you need to go in and fix. That They're not a project so that you can feel better about yourself, but they are brothers and sisters with whom you are equal, and they just happen to need a hand today. 
I don't think it's very difficult for us to find a lot of points of practical application for us, ways that we can each be challenged to live more generously. By way of conclusion, though, I want to briefly talk about how this plays out on a corporate level, because I think it does need to play out individually, but then also for us as a congregation. So our purpose as a faith community involves mission. It involves giving back. We believe that we are sent by Jesus individually and corporately, just as the Father sent Jesus into the world, Jesus is now sending us. And as we are sent, and this language is just coming from our stated purpose statement, but as we are sent, we want to participate in the restorative work of God in concrete ways, locally, in Springfield, as well as globally. So practicing the way of Jesus, we care deeply about serving whole persons and whole societies with generosity. So we want to engage missionally. We want to engage missionally in our own community, which can involve our time and our talents, but we also want to engage missionally around the world, and a part of that involves our finances, because on a global scale, I guess even on a local scale, but especially on a global scale, it requires that we partner with other organizations and other individuals who are positioned to have an impact where we simply can't have an impact because we are limited by geography. So here's a simple example. Maybe we would individually want to impact those who are suffering in war-torn Syria. Most of us are not going to have an opportunity to travel and do anything of value for those who are currently suffering. But there is an organization, there are organizations like Preemptive Love that we support on a regular basis who even today are on the ground in war-torn Syria offering help. And they need the assistance of others to do the important work that they do. Now, as a small congregation, we're not going to completely fund an organization like that, but we can do our part. And only when all of these small expressions of the kingdom of God in communities around the globe, when we are working together, only then can some of these needs begin to be met. So we partner with missionaries. We partner with other humanitarian agencies around the world. We also partner with local agencies and ministries in Springfield because we want to join God's renewal right here at home as well. And as a community, we have put together a few parameters that serve to help guide the partnerships we make. And you can find all of this information on our website if you want to do more research of what we're doing in terms of local uh, missional efforts as well as global efforts. You, you can find that on a missions tab in our website. But there are some parameters that are guiding the partnerships that we make because we want to partner with individuals and organizations that we more or less align with. And there isn't going to be complete agreement on everything. They may believe or do things that maybe we wouldn't necessarily reach that conclusion, but more or less we want to align with those that we partner with. So there are local and global needs that we are working to address. And then we further delineate those two poles with the four arms of church planting, justice and peacemaking, mercy, and community development. So these are the, the, 
the four things that are important to us as a congregation that we want to use our collective resources to help address. So when you contribute to Solid Rock, I guess I should say if you choose to contribute to Solid Rock, a portion of that gift is allocated towards these types of efforts. There are missionaries that as a congregation we support on a monthly basis financially. There are global and local organizations that we support on an annual or quarterly basis. And then there are also needs represented in our own congregation and needs in our neighborhood that we do what we can to address when we are made aware of those needs. Kevin, if, if you want to come up. We, we believe this is an important part of what Jesus calls us to do individually and as a congregation. That in our abundance, we would offer help to those who may be experiencing need. And through these efforts, we not only hope to meet real needs, that that is our primary goal, because if we're not actually meeting real needs, then we probably need to reconsider what we're doing. We want to meet real needs, physical, spiritual, whole person needs, but we also believe that as a side effect that we are going to be impacted because when we give generously, we care for our souls. And when we give generously, we demonstrate unity with those around the globe and we remind ourselves that we are connected in an important way to our brothers and sisters spread out in congregations around the world. Would you stand this morning? We just want to spend the next few moments as we reflect upon the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8. I would encourage you to spend the next few moments opening your heart to the stirring of the Spirit of God. Open your heart. Ask the Spirit if there are ways that you have been clinging to your resources. Maybe that's financial resources. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's your skills ways that you have been clinging to those things in an unhealthy way. And if there are maybe ways that you need help in opening up and opening up your hand, opening up your heart to the needs of others, to be used in drawing folks to Christ and to be used in offering assistance to those in need. Jesus, we open our hearts this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. We have heard the challenging words of Paul. We feel the tugging of your spirit. We ask for your help. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we're going to sing a song as we reflect and as we Ask God to speak to our hearts today. Gracious God, help us. Help us to be generous, giving in grateful thanksgiving for all that you have given us. In the upside-down world of the gospel, we measure wealth not by what we have,
but what we can give away. So let us give away generously that we might bless your church, your people, your creation. We recognize that we cannot sow our seed with clenched fists. So help us to open our hands, to let go of grasping that we too may scatter with hope and generosity our seeds of justice, peace, equality, and joy. So may the fruits of our harvest be for the sharing of the earth and the blessing of your love. Amen. Amen. Jesus, we ask that you'd speak to us.
Jesus, we seek to follow your example of self-giving love expressed in concrete, tangible ways in our lives. Where you go, what you do, what you say, those are the places we want to go, things we want to do, the words we want to speak. So we commit again this morning and we ask for your grace that you would draw us deeper into your life and deeper into your character. That you would nourish our souls and that we might nourish those around us. We ask that your grace and your peace would go with us today. Amen. Amen. Again, thank you for being here today. Please stick around and share a meal with us. Our benediction. Go out among the outcast and the grieving and speak the word of life and hope. Do not fear, but trust in God's word. Watch for the Lord with eager expectation and be generous with all God has given you. And may God respond to your every cry with mercy. May Christ Jesus take you by the hand and lift you to life. And may the Holy Spirit build you up as you seek to follow Christ. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. Enjoy lunch.